0: pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for every individual who is here this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts that we might hear from you. In your name and for your glory, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. One of the ways in which we define someone who makes a good friend is that it's someone who can call us out for the junk that we have in our lives, right? Someone who's able to look us in the face and say, "Uh, you've got something in your beard, you need to kind of get that out there. Uh, We all need close friends, don't we? We need uh, close family, close loved ones. We all need good friends because a good friend tells you when you're being a bozo. You know, a good friend calls you out on this. Uh, they tell you when you're being a, a jerk, and they set you back on track. You know, good friends are, are good for this. Marriage is a place where this happens as well. And I learned this lesson pretty early on in my marriage. Uh, I, and I told Molly that I was going to use this illustration. I said, uh, "Babe, I'm, I'm going to tell the story of, of that, one time, or that one time, that one time that I made you cry." And she was like, uh, "Which one?" <laughs> so <laughs> it was like, "Great, thank, thank you." So she, there she was again. You know, pointing out my my faults. That could be the illustration right there. I don't even need to tell you the story of me making her cry, uh, but I will. So shortly after we got married, uh, we celebrated Sutton Damai, which for this ethnic mutt uh, who grew up in Kansas, I had no idea what Sutton Damai is, uh, but this is the Norwegian Independence Day celebrated on May 17th, which for the good Norwegians in here, you're probably well aware of this. I'm sorry, I'm going to lower this guy. It's too tall. So Sutton Uh it means that we would uh, eat lefsa uh, and krumkaka and all of this really fun, yummy, delicious stuff. We had all of uh, our friends over into our little tiny Chicago apartment. Uh, we brought out all the dishes, which we also learned on that occasion that when you have lots of people over, paper products are to be preferred. Uh, and so we're celebrating all this stuff. There's Norwegian flags around our apartment, and I'm just kind of like... This is kind of silly, you know, like, you know, we're, I I don't have any, like, strong ethnic, like, heritage that I'm super proud of. Like, this is kind of weird, right? And one of my buddies there is there with me from college, and uh, you you know how it goes. We just kind of start egging each other, or start, start jointly kind of teasing the whole situation, the whole and demise situation. And we think we're being pretty funny, and we're laughing, and All of a sudden, I noticed Molly's not exactly laughing anymore. She's got a very serious look on her face, like, you need to cool it, brother. (laughs) And I I got the hint there, and that was, you know, that happened. And then everyone started to leave, and then we had all the pile of dishes left, and we're cleaning the dishes. And Molly was just totally shut down. And so I asked her to sit down on, on the couch so we can talk, and she just starts crying. She says, You have no idea how much this means to me, this heritage. I'm very proud of where I come from. And you just made fun of that in front of, not just, you just didn't make fun of it to me, but you made fun of it in front of all of my friends. And you're my husband. You're not supposed to be doing that. You're not supposed to be treating me that way. Well, as you can imagine, I felt pierced, cut to the soul. I felt uh, as if my, my sharpness had been exposed. And my desire to impress my friends, even at the sake of my own bride, had been exposed. Well, you see, we, these, we need these kinds of relationships, right? To set us back on course. Uh, we need these mirrors for the soul. People who love us are willing to be a mirror to us. And without mirrors in our lives, we kind of end up like these American Idol contestants, right? Where you stand up in front of an entire you know, arena full of people and you sing your heart out and the first time you've ever heard something critical actually comes from a judge because before that no one's been willing to say that. Some American Idol contestants are very good, but usually in the beginning they're they're absolutely terrible. So friends, they reveal disturbing things to us, sometimes with tears in their eyes, pleading that we would change. Well this Lent we're walking with Jesus. You've heard me say that over and over again and I, and I hope you're remembering this. Through Lent we're walking with Jesus from the Mount of Transfiguration down into Jerusalem and then eventually to the Valley of the Cross. And this is a good time to hold up mirrors to our souls, to examine our hearts. And this is actually a pretty radical idea in our culture. I remember talking about uh, kind of c- contemplating our, our own um, wretchedness <laughs> to a colleague of mine and she was like, isn't that kind of Dark? Like, don't you get tired of doing that? And I'm like, you know, for, for starters, it's, it's just for a short period of time. You know, it's just, I mean, we do that. We have patterns in our lives that always do this, but Lent is a finite period of time. But the more we, we dive into this, the more gratitude we have for Christ and what he has done. You see, the further that we descend into the valley, the brighter the stars shine. Is, it, is that rain? We, we now know what rain sounds like in the gymnasium. That's <laughs> kind of pretty. So the further that we descend into the valley, the brighter the stars shine. And I'm so excited for the great Easter vigil uh, on Saturday before Easter when we'll, we'll gather at Church at the Cross and we're going to see the stars shine very brightly. So I really hope that you all are making a point to add that to your calendars and come. So this morning, one of our texts uh, serves as an excellent mirror. It's the Ten Commandments. Uh, And in some liturgies, we would actually recite the Ten Commandments over um, every Sunday on Lent. So we're going to be taking a look at the Ten Commandments, which is sometimes just called the Law, uh, this morning. So uh, please open up your bulletins to uh, Exodus chapter 20. Now, on one hand, it's easy for us to just say, "Well, this is an ancient document. You know, this happened a long time ago. Not much of it's really applicable to us anymore." Uh, But on the other hand, this is something that still pierces our modern souls. It's something that still speaks to us, even today. And we're going to split this into two uh, groups this morning. Conveniently, uh, that's where the page break happens. So the first section's on the first page, and then we'll flip over to the second page. So the Ten Commandments begin with God saying to his people, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, You see, God's law is predicated on who he is. And this is pretty different from a lot of other uh, world religions. You know, a lot of other religions, the moral code is something that the the religious founder sort of um, meditated enough and was able to come up with, or, or sometimes the moral code is something that a group of people will even vote on, or something like that. No, this code is based off of the actions that Yahweh, that God has done for his people. And what does he say about himself? He says, I brought you, I rescued you out of the land of Egypt. Once you were slaves, but I am now turning you into a nation of priests. And so here is your moral code. He, I've done amazing things for you. Now, it's, it's significant that there's ten commandments and that there's ten plagues in the book of Exodus. Again, as if to, to draw that link and to make it even stronger. Those great mighty things I've done, I'm now, giving, I'm now providing for you in a legal way as well. I'm establishing what your society will look like. And you shall have no other gods before me, is what the Lord says. And we're, just as a heads up, we're going to be blitzing through these pretty quickly, uh, as you'll see. We could do an entire Lenten series just on the Ten Commandments. Uh, so I'm sure you'll have lots of questions. However, uh, let's, you'll notice that, that, first com- or that second command in there, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven, of anything that is on the earth, or anything that is below the earth, in the water. For I am a jealous God, he tells us. You see, God didn't rescue the Israelites out of Egypt just so that they could bow down before other gods. That would never happen. No, he demands exclusive allegiance to him. And you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Now this means something more substantial than just using colorful language every now and then. No, this means not to use the Lord's name as a curse. You see, in the ancient world, you could call upon the gods to curse your neighbors and your enemies, uh, and the Lord is saying, that is not the purpose of my name. And then it goes on to show us what right worship of the Lord looks like. Keep the Sabbath. In other words, carve out a day to worship me. Yes, you and I are called to be stewards of this creation, to be explorers of this creation, to be priests and kings in this creation. But there's one day in which we pause and in which we meditate on the things that the Lord has done. And as you can imagine, this has huge implication for a people who had been slaves, who had been forced to work day after day after day for hundreds and hundreds of years. Now they're told that they can actually pause and rest and catch their breath. And for us as Americans who can feel that grind, who can take our our work home with us at times, and I'm speaking to myself here too, it is good to pause for a day and spend the time with your family and with the Lord. This also keeps us from worshiping our work, right? Because it provides some distance to it. We're given some time to actually step back and um, distance ourselves from that. So we're easily tempted to think that these kinds of only worship me, worship me on one day kind of laws doesn't apply anymore. Because it's like, you know, we're, we're Americans. We don't, we don't live in this polytheistic society anymore. But I think that if we say that to ourselves, we're actually tricking ourselves. We need to open our eyes a little bit more. Uh, not this last week, but the week prior, I was sitting in a coffee shop and usually I've got my headphones in, but I had taken them out, my ears were starting to hurt, and and I overhear this, this lady speaking, and she just started like, saying these, these words that kind of piqued my interest. I'm like, are you, are you saying what I think you're saying right now? And she was describing to her friend uh, these various uh, sweat lodges that she's been to, where they will basically invoke spirits to come and speak to them and, and give them advice on how to live their lives. And I was like, oh my goodness, she's actually saying this. And she's describing to her friend which spirits are her favorite you know, which ones actually give the best advice and, and how to get in tune with these spirits. I was completely shocked. Uh, and so being a good priest, I walked over and I threw holy water. No, it did not happen. I actually put my headphones back in because I'm like, I'm, I, can't, I can't do this right now. This is very difficult. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, anyway. But this stuff happens. You see, we're not far away from ancient paganism as we would think. And you may have heard me tell stories like this before. Um, This isn't a rare experience in Minneapolis. Molly's had these kinds of conversations with people. Um, You've probably heard me say this before. We are an incredibly spiritual city. Just look at the tattoos that people are wearing, the t-shirts they're wearing, the various murals that you'll see uh, around town. We are a very spiritual city. And so to think that uh, we aren't tempted, or at least... Um, folks aren't tempted to bow down to other spirits and religions, is beyond us. Uh, we're being a little naive. Now, anything that compromises your allegiance to God is an idol, is some, has potential to be an idol, to compromise your devotion to the Lord. Anything that you put hope in that is not based on Christ and what he has done for you can take on this effect. Now, this is Perhaps even sillier than my previous illustration. But have you ever heard of the, mo- the movement called transhumanism? Transhumanism. This is, a couple of people are nodding their heads. This is really wacky stuff, but bear with me. So the transhumanists, they believe that humans can actually transcend their sin, their wretchedness, their argumentativeness by technological advances. So wearable technology is like all about, you know, the transhumanists love this. Um, I'm not saying if you have an Apple watch right now that you're a pagan. Um, I've got one on, it's it's not that. But these people believe that we can actually transform our own bodies through science um, to the effect of where we don't have strife with ourselves or one another anymore. You can go and you can Google this and it's really wacky stuff. I remember being in college and hearing about this and over the years since just seeing it pop up in the news more and more. And sometimes you can even hear the language of this kind of pop up in even consumer electronics or um, e- even things like building rockets and going to Mars. You know, It kind of has this feeling of it that we can, we can improve ourselves strictly by our technology. And I know that this is kind of silly, but you can kind of see the connections of maybe being obsessed with tech culture and sort of ending up in this transhumanism sort of um, place. So I would ask you, in, in your various industries and careers and, and, and whatnot, what sort of ways or what sort of goals are they setting? What sort of assumptions are they making about humankind? So, for example, um, several of you are teachers, You know, is your industry, is the marketplace of being a teacher teaching us that what's wrong with the world is actually just ignorance and it's merely going to be education that fixes it? Or maybe it's politics. You think, you know what, we just need better laws, we need better politicians and then the world will be fine, then everything will be solved. Or maybe it's social work, it's caring um, for those who are poor and marginalized and obviously these are all good things, these all have a place and bringing God's kingdom about. But when it's that one thing that is is steering the hope away from what you have in Christ, then that's where it becomes an idol. So that's the first group of the commandments. Let's now turn to the second group, which conveniently is on the other page. (laughs) So these, if you could summarize the first group as loving God, the second group of the commandments can be summarized by saying, love your neighbor. Now these begin with a focus at the center of the community, The home. They start off by saying, honor your father and your mother. You see, in the ancient world and hopefully today, the family should be the keystone of the community. That first piece. You see, the father and the mother, those are the ones who are the stewards of wisdom, of vocational training, of character formation. And so by honoring your father and your mother, you are rooting yourself within this great tradition, this great framework that hopefully they stand in. Now, I know that that ideal is very rare. Uh, I know that very well myself. But it's good here to see what that ideal is and strive for it in our own lives. Well, then the commands continue. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal or bear false witness. Do not covet your neighbor's house, wife, servant, ox, or anything else. What's interesting about that last one in particular is that it's, it's a matter of the heart. You see... It's the only one that only you and the Lord are aware of. The rest of them are pretty observable. You can go to jail for those. But the last one's a thing that's just between you and God. But God is concerned about your heart, is what we can pick up from that. Now, it's easy to look at this list and say, yeah, I've got that. I'm totally good here. So it's easy to say, I've got that. I do not have my microphone. We are just wrestling this morning. There we go. You guys are laughing at me. (laughs) So it's easy to look at these commandments and say, I've totally got this. I haven't killed anyone lately. I haven't stolen anything since I was a little kid. Uh, I haven't committed adultery lately. Um, I might lie on occasion. I might fib on occasion. But on the whole, no one's really being hurt by this stuff. I'm totally fine here. Well, see, these commandments, what they do is they they establish this fence, this moral fence for the community. And so it's not just the negative aspect of them that we should be uh, considering and looking at and sort of excusing ourselves from. But each of these, and if you've heard me teach on the Ten Commandments before, you've heard me say this, but each of these commandments also have a positive implication to them as well. Realize by saying do not, you're establishing a fence and you're implying so much more to the field about it. So here's what I mean by that. These commandments, they're not just do-nots, but they're also commanding us to seek the betterment of our neighbors. Seek the well-being and the flourishing of our neighbors. Do not murder. Yes, what that means is seek the life of your neighbors. Encourage them in their living. Do not commit adultery. Well, just as you you honor your family, honor your neighbor's family as well. What are things that you can be doing to, to help their marriages stay intact? to help out with their their families and whatnot. Do not steal. Well, just as you've been honoring people's um, families and relationships, also honor their material blessings as well. How can you honor them in that? How can you be glad for your neighbor and celebrate their accomplishments in this life? Do not lie. How can you be a, a champion of truth in your community? You see, these Ten Commandments are a beautiful mirror in which they show us ways in which we're falling short But in addition to that, they're also a portrait of something so beautiful, so great that we should want to attain to. These are portraits portrait of a good neighborhood. You see, for the Israelites, this had huge implications. Do not act like slaves anymore, these commandments are saying. You are not slaves. You're not under cruel oppressors anymore. You are now able to worship the Lord in purity. You're not forced to work every single day anymore building up somebody else's empire. No, you can now rest in the Lord's kingdom. And where your family systems were being ignored and beaten down, now you have a place that uplifts the family. Now you have been redeemed as God's sons and daughters. You're in my family now, the Lord is saying. So it's time to act like it. So this is a portrait of the good neighborhood that God wants us to live in where family is honored, where possessions are respected, and life flourishes. Doesn't your heart yearn for this kind of home? Isn't this a place that you want to live in? Do you know what my neighborhood's like? It's not like this. And, and don't get me wrong, I've got some great neighbors. We have a meal every month together. Our neighborhood is a, is a in place. But my bike's been stolen out of our garage uh, some of my neighbors have pets that leave little presents in my yard all the time. That is not a good neighborhood, let me tell you. The first couple of weeks after we moved in, there's actually a, a homemade bomb that went off down the street. Um, thankfully, no one was hurt by that. You know, what better way to say welcome to the neighborhood right, than a bomb going off? Uh, it gets even worse. There's a website that I can go to, and I can see a list of people who've committed especially heinous crimes, and I can see where they're living. And thankfully, some aren't next door, but this isn't a good neighborhood, is what I'm saying. And these kinds of examples, these are pretty mild in comparison to some of the other neighborhoods that that you all and, and our friends here in Minneapolis are in. You see, we don't have good neighborhoods. And some of us live in neighborhoods where we don't even know our neighbors How can you respect your your neighbor's life and their flourishing when you don't even know them at all? You see, none of us live in good neighborhoods. Now, again, God wants us to live in a neighborhood where the outcast is looked out for, where there's no dookie being thrown in each other's yards, and stuff like that. God wants us to live in a place where life is flourishing, and what if restoration was such a neighborhood like that? What if restoration was a place like this? Well, unfortunately, I've got bad news for you. We can't. We can't do that. This isn't going to happen. You see, as as long as restoration is a church where humans are involved, humans like this guy, it's not going to be a good neighborhood. You see, it's easy for us to blame others for doing bad things in in our neighborhoods to our homes, but we should be blaming ourselves as well. I'm not a good neighbor. I could list all the horrible things that I've done, uh, maybe letting trash drift, and, and that's a mild example. But there are bad things that we've done in our neighbors, in our neighborhoods. See, God's law is good and beautiful and perfect, but it's only there to reveal sin. It doesn't give us the remedy for sin. What the law does is it points its finger at things and it says, fix this, fix this, and this, and this, fix this. That's what the law is there for. But praise be to God that the law is not the final word. There is a remedy. You see, God Himself came down and He took matters into His own hands for us. You see, with, with God coming down as Jesus Christ, He rewalks the path of Israel and He's without sin. He models for us what that full life intended by the Ten Commandments is actually supposed to look like. He has whole, full devotion to the Father. He cares for the poor and the outcast. He goes and he finds them and he restores them. He brings them back home. He gives life to people in a literal sense. Jesus Christ embodies the good neighborhood. And then he does even more. He takes the punishment that we deserved and he takes it to the cross. He takes on our own punishment and he dies as a condemned criminal hung from a tree, completely accursed. What we cannot do, he does. He makes perfect atonement for sin. And it doesn't stop there. He makes a mockery of death itself. He rises again from the dead, and then he turns to us and says, come, follow me. As you've seen me do, now you come and do. This is absolutely scandalous. This is something that the world totally laughs at. And if you were paying close attention to our readings from First Corinthians You could hear Paul just kind of laughing at the way in which the world sees the gospel. See, Paul says that we preach Christ crucified. Christ crucified. We've heard that so many times as Christians that we're just like, yeah, we preach Christ crucified. But do you get how wacky of a phrase that is? It's nonsensical. It's it's an absolute oxymoron. It's a contradiction of terms. Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the King of Kings, comes comes. he's convicted of treason he's accursed by the law and he's killed god becomes man but then man dies and as paul says for those who are seeking power for those who are wanting for god to come down and just force the good kingdom everywhere god god totally makes a mockery of that the cross is an embarrassment to people who are seeking god's power in that sort of way in fact, the cross wasn't even used as a religious symbol for several centuries. That's how, Christ, how embarrassed Christians were of the cross. They were seeing the Romans crucify people left and right, and it didn't become a symbol for us until that had long ceased. Well, not only for those seeking power, but for those seeking wisdom, it's an embarrassment as well. You see, we want to achieve the good life through wisdom, through eloquence, through education and innovation, We want to achieve the good life through our own industries. But God, without talking to us, comes and he establishes the good life in his own way. He comes and defeats death, and he himself becomes the gate to the good neighborhood. Where we can come and we can dwell, not out of obligation, not because we're trying to earn our salvation and try to prove that we should be admitted in, but no, Christ lets us in, And then we can offer up our obedience to him as gratitude and thankfulness, as a sweet and perfect sacrifice to him where he is pleased. So these commandments stand as as not a weight, an oppressive burden to us, but as an inspiration of what Christ has done and what we should be able to do through him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.